God has made one man, one individual, one human being. And everything from painting the house to saying the rosary is just as religious because it's the same service of God. So the painting of the house is no less religious in the proper understanding because it's the same man under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost who's painting his house because it needs it, which is the same man who prays the rosary because it's part of the devotion paid to God and the sanctification of my soul. So you can't divide them. You can't separate them. When we speak of the love then, either between friends or specifically this morning, um, between a man and a woman, with whoever is here, well, this actually looks more like a thing. We start with objects, we're drawn toward them, but it's also with people. So we'll draw her here. We'll give her an earring and some hair. Okay, there she is. Beauty's in the eye of the beholder, so don't worry. And now, so she can still be a fine mother of your children. All right, so now. Each of these individuals are this one being, material and immaterial. Because we said that love is first from the creation, that means that man by his very nature actually has a tendency to love rather than to be hateful. Because of original sin, we have that quirk within us which makes us selfish. And the selfishness may bring on hatred. But according to our nature, actually we are quite content when we meet someone new. I think that in the last couple of days, I think you've been pleased if you meet someone that you have, you know, even amongst our own little group. If you just talk a little bit, we're always pleased when we can make that contact. Because it's part of the nature of man to be a social animal. He is, he is, a, he is an animal, he's a rational animal, but he's also an animal. And as an animal, we are a herd animal. Okay? We are a herd animal. The problem is that there's too much herding and there's not enough thinking. That's, that is part of the problem. But man by nature is social, and he will. And that's why your babies cling to you, and when you put them down, they scream and cry. Because they, man by nature will cling. He will hang on to other, other men. And that's why when there's a catastrophe, when there's a disaster, it, men will usually pull together, unless they've been totally denatured. And that's why if everything does collapse next year, it'll be great, because it will be the, probably the first time that people will begin to act like human beings. It's really not quite a horrible thing. So, you know, so it'll be uncomfortable, but... It will be the if something happens, it will be the salvation of a lot of people. Because they'll realize they're human for the first time instead of sitting in front of computers and televisions and telephones and radios all day long. Right? Uh, many people will go out of their minds. They'll go absolutely mad because they, they have no noise coming. And so they'll go out of their minds. They won't know what to do. But sure, you'll go to one of your relatives' house and turn off the television in the midst of a family get-together. Everyone stops talking. They don't know what to do. It's a, it's a horrible experience. It's like a vacuum. <gasps> That's a whole other discussion. So man, man, when people are at peace with each other, with each other, they regard they regard another person as someone who would be good to meet. When there is peace, when there is a certain order and there is a certain tranquility, it's when society functions you will normally get to know other people. It's only when you have all this electronic artificiality when you all hide in your family rooms and watch television all night and never talk. You don't even know who the person who lives 30 feet from you is. You have no you've got a clue. You see them on occasion as they scurry to the car and then come back and scurry out of the car back into the house. We live like a bunch of mice. 
So, in the nature of man, the readiness to love is actually first. Hatred is something secondary. It's a denial of that love. This may all seem somewhat analytic, but it's something to think about. The readiness to love is first, and the, the hatred, which is a denial of this love, if you deny this love, what you're basically saying is it's me. So what is first considered as being hatred, in fact, is hatred only because it's egotism. Junior hugs mom, he's sweet and wonderful, and then he walks out of the room, like we said, and he beats the snot out of his little brother and takes his truck. Now, that act of beating his little brother is an act of hatred. That is evil, that is bad. But why does he do that? Because he wants the truck. It's actually because of an egoism. The hatred is less the evil of the person doing it and more the fact that I'm choosing myself. Because life, life without love, life without the tendency towards other human beings is already an act of loneliness and egoism. So you meet those old misers. Well, you can meet young misers too. These people who are kind of turned in on themselves. They're horrible. They're also extremely lonely. They are first egoists, which is why often they are avaricious. They cling on to things. They hang on to things because they're, they're greedy because they're egotistical. But because they're egotistical, they suspect everyone, they're paranoid, and they hate everyone. So they don't communicate. They shrivel up. But man by nature, in fact, and we know that this is the mind of God, because the very first thing that God says about man, instead of just talking to him, the very first thing that he says about man is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, when he says that it is not good for man to be alone. This is the preface before he creates Eve. And so the comment which God himself makes about man is that he is not meant to be alone. So it's the first statement made about man. Right? But the irony of this is that when we, this hatred to separate from others, right? this egotism, because of the reason of what we were created for and loving, this egotism and this hatred of another, in fact, is an evil, which is pretty, which is at this point easy to see is an evil, and in fact, because the person closes in on themselves, is, is in reality a form of self-hatred itself. Because you are denying what is your ultimate reality. You were made for love, namely with God and God alone, but also the creatures with whom you've been created. It is part of the restoration of the gospel. But the gospel comes to restore. It's why our Lord can stand there and say, he who seeks himself, who seeks his life, will lose it. Because in fact, his egotism is self-hatred. He himself will die. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it, will find his life. It's the only way to come to understand the paradox is it is not poetry. Our Lord doesn't say this thing because it's poetry. And when he says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, he's not saying it because it's poetic, because it's nice, because it's pleasant. He is saying because it is a reality of what man was first created 
for which man was first created. Of course, there was no enemy, strictly speaking, in the beginning. But even the best people on the earth, who have never done anything to anyone, if they exist, will still have enemies. The saints had enemies. Our Lord had enemies. So just by being good is not going to change the fact that people, other people are not going to like you for whatever. I don't know, you suck your teeth after dinner. They don't like that, and you annoy them, and so it's a very minimal way of being an enemy, but they still don't like you. You antagonize them, okay? We can never make everybody happy all the time, so it isn't worth trying to do. Because if you're preoccupied with making everyone happy with you all the time, what are you preoccupied with? Me. I am concerned that everyone like me all the time. That's a preoccupation with me. Whether what our Lord says is to do, every, to do good to everyone without regard for even their disposition. You do good to your enemies. That you pray for those and you do, do good to those who persecute you. That's a pretty incredible request, demand, obligation. Because he says, if you love those who love you, what are you doing different than the pagans? Nothing. It is easy to love a friend who loves you. It is easy to love a child who loves you. It is difficult to love the children that you don't like. And most families have one of their children who just kind of annoys the living daylights out of them because God throws one of those into each batch <laughs> in order to make sure that you really are doing your office as father to do good to all of your children, to draw out of them the best sanctification possible, regardless of whether you like their personality or not. It is obviously natural that you do not like all of your children. You cannot pretend, well, I mean, maybe, maybe all of them are just an extraordinary batch and you just, they would all be your friends if they were, you know, adults that you met on the street. Maybe, maybe not. Most people do not like all their children. They love their children, but they don't necessarily like them. Right? It's a big difference. Right? Now, this sense of egoism, this form of self-hatred, is exactly what counteracts the true self-love, which is that which, as we mentioned, does go out to the other. This is, in doing, in, because we find good here, and in doing good, that draws us out of ourselves, which sounds like it's going to be something depleting us, but in fact is the true self-love, because it's accomplishing a fulfillment. We are accomplishing some perfection within us. So that doing of good, in fact, is a perfection of this being, let alone not only showing kindness. That's why if you ever want to finish an argument, if you just stop and begin to be kind, well, first they'll suspect you. They'll think it's another trick. But you'll see it continually in the examples of the saints. Even those who are mortal enemies, who will, by request because of the name of our Lord on Good Friday or something, you need to overcome evil by good. That will require, some cases, heroic acts of will. No one's denying that. No one will deny that. But those acts of will which may even be heroic, the whole time is act activating what we call the virtues. And notice that the very basis of virtue is this word vir in Latin, which means man. Not just man as a human being, but man as male. 
There is a perfect understanding that the virtue is only done by the strong. It is difficult to be humble when someone is stomping all over you. It is difficult to practice virtue in many cases, and we will too easily degenerate and just become neo-pagans with a veneer. We'll act like everyone else, think more or less else like everyone else, and then say the rosary. There's no difference in the way that we act or operate. This heroic virtue right, can, will bring not only the practice of the virtues, but it will also bring a perfection of this person. Which is why our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount, in saying all of these absolutely wild things about loving your enemy and doing good to those who persecute you and beat you up and chase you down, he then gives an example. He says, God himself makes it to rain. He gives rain to the fields of the good and of the bad. And he makes the sun to shine and the crops to grow for the evil and for the good. And then he says, be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What is he saying? Sometimes you have some spiritual writers will say, well, that means as God is perfect in his own capability, then you're supposed to be good in your own capability. That's not what it says. The example which our Lord gives is that God does good to all, regardless of their dispositions. And he is saying, that is what you must do. You must do good to all, regardless if they are quote-unquote worthy or not. That is what transformed the world, and that is the radicalness, the radical aspect of the gospel which transformed the world because it went to the very root, radix. That's what radical means. Radical doesn't mean you're a communist. Radical means you go to the very root of things. And the gospel is radical. And the gospel is, by turning the, the, the concepts of paganism on its head, has that idea of revolving. And that is why when the gospel came into the world, it went to the root, it was radical, and it revolted. It revolved the whole entire pagan th way of thinking. And that's why it transformed the world. Unfortunately, too many of us have called the truce, and we think in pagan terms. And one of the first things which suffers is our concept of love. The... The concept of love in the Christian is one which draws perfection and virtue and which ultimately pushes toward, we see this, sacrifice. That is why our Lord at the Last Supper will say that no man loves his friends more than he who lays down his life for them. It's not exactly the term, but you know the quotation. Those who sacrifice themselves for their friends, there is no greater love now, you cannot do that unless you are continually in a way of sustaining yourself and doing good to all, regardless of judging them as being worthy or unworthy. But just doing good because either they need it, or because it is something good, or even better, because they're evil. You overcome evil by good, St. Paul says. He says there is a hierarchy, though. That's why you read St. Thomas. There is a hierarchy in how charity is practiced. There's a hierarchy of it. And so, to love draws us out of ourselves, necessarily. That is why you have seen in your marriages these wonderful, heroic creatures that we call women. 
often women will put to shame, I mean, a man can go out to build his financial empire and work hours and hours and hours and hours and come home exhausted. But you watch a woman with her sick babies and she goes and 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 she doesn't come home exhausted. She's exhausted, but she just keeps going because she has to. Now, part of that is virtue because it's an act of the will and part of it is just because of what God gave them. It's a marvel of seeing what God has created in these women. Part of it is their nature and part of it is virtue. But true love draws us out towards what is good. And in loving, we become more fully human. Because this idea of drawing out is ultimately toward God. That's the reason why we were created. That's the human being. He was created for God. And so even among our creatures, that's why we have to find God in these creatures. That we were created in order to find union with God in love. And so our Lord restores that original union, that original love, by the gospel. If you, if you understand just a little bit of this, you'll understand why it caught the entire pagan world on fire. They were, they were concepts which they had never heard before. Right? Charity and humility have only belonged to Christianity, period. They have never belonged to any other religion. So by drawing us out, we become more fully, our, fully human ourselves, what we were made for, and then ultimately the supernatural goal, by grace, makes us also the adopted children of God. By loving the creatures also, you have the aspect, not only does it benefit us, he who, deny, he who loses his life for my sake shall find it, but also in doing good to these creatures, you can see how that will transform the people around you. And the father who has this sense that the reason why I exist is my vocation of fatherhood, to do good, to make the sun to shine upon my wicked children and my good children, and to make the rain fall upon, you know, those who were good today and those who were bad, and to show, to show a goodness. Doesn't mean you're not going to discipline. We'll get to that later as the days go on this week. I'm not saying, you know, just pretend nothing's happening wrong. But to understand first the basic of idea. If you understand this concept of love, you will be able to discipline finally, correctly. All too often discipline is, I'm angry, I'm going to smack the snot out of you. That's all too often the case. We discipline according to our passions, like we lead our lives according to our passions. If you understand this concept of love of doing good, then the discipline which you will administer will be because you are doing good to them because they need to be corrected. And when it is based upon this love, it will not be animated with a blue face and just gritting your teeth. Which may not always be the case, but it obviously arises at times. And so this drawing out is how the full person grows, which is why the man who is egotistical always shrivels up. A man who is egotistical, a man who is self-centered, always is a very puny man. He's a very little man. You, you meet many cases like that. They have never learned to love. And because we are, by original sin, selfish, it goes back to the question last night about the choice of celibacy, just simply to be single as a state. 
It does not seem that it can be a state that you just simply choose. Because the way in God's plan comes about is that because of original sin now, we have a tendency towards being selfish. And it's only in conjunction with other people. In the monastic life, in the convent, in a family, that that selfishness necessarily gets beaten down. And that is why the life of a hermit is a very distinct vocation and is only allowed by the ecclesiastical authorities. You need permission to do that, to live a truly a life as a hermit. Because even the Greeks themselves recognized this social aspect of man, and they said that any man who chose not to live in society of men is either less than a man or more than a man. He was either a beast or a god. Even the Greeks understood the importance of this. And so, translated in the Christian terms, this man is either a beast, he is selfish and egotistical and refuses contact with other human beings, or he is a god, which we wouldn't say in Christianity, but he is someone who has reached the point of the spiritual life who desires to go even further, to be alone with God in the desert to combat Satan. And that's a very special vocation. But it's, it's, this is the key to understanding this love. The benefits of love cannot be the motive of love. In other words, I love because it makes my wife make really super dinners. I show her kindness because she cooks better on those days. Because then, if you are loving, motivated by benefits which come from love, then you are still seeking yourself. It is true that if you are kind to other people, they are kind to you back. But if you are kind to them only so that they be kind to you back, which is a classic childhood thing, little Joey down the street has a pool. My family doesn't have a pool. I like Joey, especially in July and August. Right? So Junior goes out and makes friends with Joey. Actually, what is, your, what is your son doing? Is He is seeking himself, seeking his good by seeking this pool. And he has perverted love and friendship by making it a means to get what he egotistically wishes. In the human world, we call it flattery, which is a sin. Where you do, obviously, only the appearance of kindness in that, not for kindness at all, but ultimately for motivations. But even in the realm where we don't always suspect it, we often love, quote-unquote love, for its benefits. And we cannot love. Love, love cannot be motivated right, by simply the benefits which come from love. It must be, in order to be perfect, it must be disinterested. Which means you don't, that doesn't mean you don't care. But it means that I am not doing it because I have an interest in it. Dis means away from, separate. Not. It's a denial. It's a form of, it's a form of negation. But the paradox in it is that you cannot separate the joy which necessarily will result from loving from the act of love. The paradox. You cannot love motivated by benefits. This is part of the perversion of a family who asks the son to cut the grass because you love me. Oh, come on, do it for mommy because you love her. No. 
You twist your children that way. They do it because it is duty and obligation. They may love you for it also, and you may love them, but that's not why they do it. Come here and wash the dishes for me. Tell you, show you how, do it for mommy. Don't you love mommy? That is not the purpose. You wash the dishes because the dishes that need to be washed. There's an obligation of the duty and the function of the house here. But you can never use the motivation of duty by using the moral persuasion of love for the parents. We'll come to that again in the following days, hopefully. So there is a possession of a good. There is a joy which comes from loving. And there are benefits which come from loving. But love must just be to do good in the image of God. And not because we get things from it. Though we will get joy and we will have things from it, but that can't be the motivation. And a person who lives in this disinterested way, understanding that love is disinterested, will do good to other people. And if that person just ignores me in doing good, I'm not crushed for the evening. I don't go home crying and in tears because, you know, this person didn't acknowledge my kindness. It may perturb me a bit because we're human beings and we like to have it recognized, but it's not the reason why I did it. It's not the reason why I did it, so the fact that it didn't accomplish, it didn't happen, it does not destroy my life. So the, the accompanying joy which comes with loving cannot be renounced either. The joy will necessarily come. There is a form of spirituality called quietism in the church. And it's those who claim that their charity is so perfect, it doesn't really, well, I suppose it's around now, but it was a great movement in the 17th century, especially in France and Spain, of an idea that my charity for God must be so perfect that I am totally unconcerned whether I save my soul. It doesn't make any sense. Because my saving of my soul is precisely the union which is necessarily consequent to loving God. You cannot, be, you cannot have this complete, <clears throat> the death's part of the joy which will come from love. And it's a little more complex than that. But again, it comes down to this fact that the joy which comes from loving, you can't renounce it. But you can't be motivated by the benefits either. So there's a paradox there. There's a paradox. So that all true love is both disinterested and rewarded. All true love is disinterested and rewarded. You read the lives of the saints. How could they possibly do the things which they did? Some just extraordinary, in some cases, just extraordinary things they did. Acts of virtue. St. Vincent de Paul. St. Vincent de Paul and his death, you know, being, not even being content with what he had done, even though he single-handedly transformed all the works of charity in the country of France, in the kingdom of France, but still disappointed because there was so much more to do. What I did was nothing. St. Thomas Aquinas, writing his great theological works, his charity manifests itself in his great theological expose of the reality and the truths of Revelation. And to be able to look back on his life, knowing God so much better than he knew at the beginning of his life, and looking back on it and saying, it's nothing, it's straw, it's useless. And then he stopped writing. That's why the Summa was never actually finished. Because at that point, shortly before his death, he knew God so much more through his prayer that no matter what he was going to write down, fell so far short of it that he just couldn't bring himself to do it. So it was left uncompleted. It's only reason why the Summa has a completion to it is because it was made from notes from his students, from his lectures. 
That's how they completed the rest of the subject matter. But he never finished the Summa. It would be, for example, what's translated into a very human terms. The man who truly loves his wife and who appreciates every perfection in this woman. You may begin to try to describe her. But a man who truly appreciates the very depth of this woman and her perfections will always be unhappy with the description he's given because he knows it falls short of the reality. Now, if you don't think much about your wife, you can say, yeah, you know, she's okay. She makes a great chocolate cake and that's about it. You know, and that's it. And you think that that's adequate. But since each man is material and immaterial, there is always going to be an aspect of each human being which is going to be inescapable and of a depth which is almost unreachable. That's why even after years and years and years of marriage, there will always still be something. No matter how well you always know your spouse, there's always something which always remains there, which is just at the edge of it. Or with friendship, the same thing. You never perfectly know. Only God knows perfectly the very depths of the soul, of the heart and of the mind. So that true love is both disinterested because it does not seek a reward, but by doing good and by loving will always necessarily be rewarded in the joy of, of loving. That is the reason why you see the saints. Even if their entire work collapses in 15 minutes, they were doing it for God. God is in charge. The success hasn't seemed to pan out, so their life goes on. Because they did not do it to build this building or to build this project. They did it to serve God. The service of God, I did the best that I could. So my service was fine. God's providence chose that it will not exist. And so they have a peace already there, and there is a joy because what they did, they did from love. A man who does something good because it's going to be something which he wants to see. These are the parents who live vicariously through their children. These are the men who have to make sure that their son is playing first base, and nothing less than that. These are the men and the women who live through their children. Their children become means and ends and pivots in their lives towards their selfishness. And you see it all the time. Like I told you last year, my experience with softball, or my, my experience with Little League Baseball. I had that for two years. And I have never, from the age of seven, ever been able to shake off my disgust with team sports because of this one coach that we had. Because the entire team played so that his son, who was on this team, would be first base and everything else. And he had no concern for the other members of the team. And I have to say, even to this day, 20-some, almost 30 years later, I still have a distaste for team sports because of this one jerk. Because at seven, I knew that he was a jerk. Don't think that your children are so dumb. Children are very perceptive, especially your sons. They may be intellectually dull, because boys are not usually too book smart when they're little, but they do have a sense of justice which God has given them. And that's why if your son sees justice, you can run him over with a bulldozer. But if you just tap him on the arm unjustly, he will resent it. Almost forever, but he may get over it. But if he sees it as being just, I mean, you could hang him out to the four winds for the next three weeks. Um, and so you cannot live vicariously. Father Matteo is another example, the great preacher of the Sacred Heart. 
His first assignment as a young priest in his 20s was to build a law school in Valparaiso in Peru. And he started setting up this kind of college in this little university. And he worked and he worked and he gathered money and he built this beautiful, beautiful law building. And two years after that, there was an earthquake to smash the whole thing apart. He was a young man still and he was devastated by it. I did the will of God, I followed the orders of my superior, I raised this money, I built this school, I was doing everything that was seen to be the, the will of God, and now it's smashed. And his health was so harmed that in fact he had to leave and go to Europe. And he was very much weakened by the whole thing. And when he went to Paralimonial, at the, the, the shrine of the Sacred Heart, the apparitions of the Sacred Heart, there he received some kind of grace, we don't know exactly what it was, in which he came to develop the concept of the enthronement. We'll talk about this in a few days. The enthronement of the Sacred Heart, right? which, as a result, has sanctified millions of homes this century. Millions around the world. What Father Matteo learned in all that is that he still clung too much into material success, nice things, good things, a building, a school even in obedience to his superiors. But it's not what God wanted. God wanted the love, God wanted the devotion, and the Sacred Heart taught him that a few years later. And from that point on, all he did was spend the rest of his life for the next 47 years traveling around the globe, preaching the Sacred Heart, and preaching retreats to priests. He almost single-handedly was the source of an entire reform of the country of Portugal. They speak of Father Mateo's coming as a new Pentecost. He is the man who told Salazar to enter into politics, who became the great president of Portugal this century. But he had to learn that your love and your devotion is done just for the sake of love and devotion and not for the reward that comes. And when you love in a disinterested manner, it will always be rewarded. That's the paradox. He only came to know and to love the Sacred Heart more as the years went on. Now, that's Father Matteo, that's a priesthood, but it's all the same basis of love. There is no essential difference in the love of the religious life and of matrimony. We already called you bishops yesterday, what else do you want? Right? <laughs> you can all leave a little paper miters. Look what I got at the conference, honey. <sighs> You're not going to wear that at a table, are you? I'm presiding over my family at dinner. Right. There is no essential difference because there is only one Christian love. Just that it has different forms, but it's essentially the same. Which is another reason why we said that a good priest would have been a good father, and a good father would have been a good priest. And no one should console themselves by saying, well, I chose the wrong vocation. Uh-uh. It doesn't work that way because Christian perfection and Christian charity is practiced in any state of life. See? No cop-outs at the end of the days. Right? Now, one aspect which I want to bring up is that when it comes to the love of a man and a woman, as Adam and Eve were created in the beginning, because of this oneness, the love of a man and a woman obviously is a very unique form of love. Again, it has to be inspired by Christian charity, which means it's not essentially different, but it is a unique mode of Christian love. That unique mode of Christian love is going to be primarily directed toward union, 
of husband and wife, and the matrimonial embrace. Because man is spiritual and material, immaterial and material, that destined union of husband and wife is always necessarily going to be exclusive because of its material aspect. Now, if you think about it for a moment, things which are spiritual can be shared by all. You can share spiritual things, and spiritual things, in fact, become enriched. Material things, by being shared, are diminished. Well, it's a material thing, there's only some people that can share it. Otherwise, it diminishes each person in additionally sharing. So that you can have one person at Mass or 600 people at Mass. It doesn't make any difference. They all will receive as richly from the spiritual benefit of the Mass. You can also have, well, if you look at the question of material things, there's only so many people, so many people that can eat this chocolate cake. And that's why they stab each other. Mine. Now, if they're spiritual, if they are religious people, then they will sit back and watch the other person eat the cake and then judge them rashly in their mind, saying, well, he's just greedy. He's just greedy. And I'm being self-virtuous because I'm denying my will here. That's what goes on inside us. The love which is meant, in the, because it's going to be not only a spiritual union, but a physical union, it will always be an exclusive union. That is why man was first created in monogamy, one man, one woman, and it was restored that way in the gospel. And the only reason why in the old law you either had under the patriarchs, when you under the patriarchs, you had a multiple, and especially in the old law under Moses, why they allowed divorce, our Lord says very clearly, because of the hardness of your hearts. See? But it's not the way God created in the beginning. But you notice that the exclusivity, the exclusive possession of one another in the material realm only comes first because of the spiritual bonding which must be there first. Must be there first. Which is why conjugal relations only come after the covenant or after the consent or after the contract, the will to live with each other until death is first made then you may, so to speak, take possession, benefit from this exclusive union which belongs to man and wife. That's the difference between the ratified and the consummated marriage. Okay? But the idea here is that for man and woman, this love must be exclusive, will be exclusive. Friends, you can have a number of friends. In fact, you, have, you will rarely have many friends, true friends. Because a friend is somebody who becomes another self. But it is a different type. So you can have many friends without being crushed because this friend also has other friends. Because it is something spiritual which is shared. And it's not diminished by it. But the union of man and woman is something which is spiritual and material. And insofar as it is material, it can only be exclusive. But you can't say that just on the material it's exclusive and on the spiritual it can be shared. Some kind of form of spiritual adultery. Because man is one. And the same person who is material and immaterial is shared, is possessed only exclusively in the matrimonial bond. It's the inviolable attachment to one another. Within the marriage, within the marriage, there must first be a recognition of our Lord's dominion. Okay? 
It comes back to the same question of charity. Even when there is this exclusive possession of men and woman, the exclusive possession of man and woman and woman and man is only in Christ in the mind of the church, which is why you marry only the baptized. The church may tolerate the marrying of a non-baptized, less so than even for a mixed marriage, but she despises mixed marriages. Because the whole image of the restored matrimony is Christ and the church. You cannot reflect that image with somebody who is of a different religion or not baptized at all. In fact, if the other person is even baptized, there isn't even a sacrament. And the reflection and the restoration of what normally should be here will not be present. This is why the church despises, I mean, I use the word, and it's chosen. The word, the church despises them. She may tolerate them, but she never blesses them. Because understanding this exclusivity and the restored matrimony, the restored bond of man and woman, as a reflection and an extension of Christ and the church, cannot be other than between truly those who are baptized. That's the proper thinking of the church. And the priests in the last 30 and 40 years have done a tremendous disservice to the people by being nice. Well, you know, if you really like him, yes, he's a Mormon, but you know he's really not that bad. I know of these disastrous families. Usually it's the woman who is sucked into it. Because she just is crushed under, he's so wonderful, he's so magnificent. And then she finds out that they don't think on anything important in the same way. The only thing that they noticed in dating is they like the same restaurant and listen to the same music. That is not what you found the household upon. Obvious. And then she's just in a disastrous situation. I know of cases like this. And so they always wondered where that nasty priest was who would have told them when they were 17. They would have hated him at the time. That would have saved something of some of these families, at least some of the heartache. Not always. But it's the mind of the church. She may tolerate them, but she never blesses them. That's why they're done in black, in the sacristy, and that's it. It makes an impression on people. But normally, because we are selfish, they will turn around and say, the church is nasty. That's wretched. That's horrible. That's uncaring. That's unconcerned. Because they have no idea of why she makes that decision. Because they have no understanding of what true love and truly the matrimonial bond is. They perceive only, you're being mean to me. So you're nasty. You're being mean to me. It's all egoism. It's all egoism, 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 egoism. Which doesn't mean that just because someone's going to throw rocks and say that we're being mean, that necessarily is so, and we need to judge according to what is good. It goes back to the other conference on the question of judging by priorities of goodness. And you choose the greater good. Right? You choose the greater good. And so it's a recognition of our Lord's dominion over your families, which means in a concrete manner. Now we're going to be introducing, as we come in these next days, into more of the concrete aspects of matrimony itself. But I had to lay this entire foundation out of matrimonial love to have an idea of what's going to flow from it in the education of your children and everything else. So that during these days, you have to begin to start thinking and start making resolutions. 
It will be useless to come here for five days, sleep a lot, have a quiet little room, no babies screaming next to your bed. If you do not return with a benefit for that household which God has given you, no matter how good our household is at this point, it can always be better because it can always become more spiritualized. St. Paul tells us in the epistles to be followers of God. In fact, he says to be imitators of God as most dear children. And to walk in love as Christ also loved us and has delivered himself for us an oblation and a sacrifice to God for an odor of sweetness. That's Ephesians chapter 5. The same epistle which talks about matrimony. It's not talking about matrimony here. It will do it uh, towards the end of this chapter. Towards the end of this chapter that he talks about this sacrifice, delivering yourself, loving, imitating God, and being like Christ, he finishes that chapter by talking about marriage. It's not by chance. It's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and two. So you have to think, you have to reflect, and you have to make resolutions during this week. Because the aspect, well, which we'll come back, I think, to this afternoon, is the fact that in imitating God's love, God's love is creative. We'll come back to that idea this afternoon. But God, by loving, creates. And that's the imitation that you as fathers in your vocation must also accomplish to create good by love, which we'll explain a little bit later.